Good morning. My name is Heather Pittman, your scripture reader for this morning. Our scripture reading comes from Exodus, verse 33, book 33, chapter 17 to 34. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain. And do not let the flocks or herds graze in front of that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love 
for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. If you kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Who among us could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Through the preaching of your word, wash over us with the spirit of your grace. Our souls await, and in your word, we put our hope. Amen. So we're coming near the end of the Exodus sermon series every week. My wife Cheyenne says, oh, it's, we're still in Exodus, are we? Um, we have one more next week with uh, Jerry Schoberg preaching, but uh, this one is my last shot. Uh, it's been a wild ride. It's been a wild ride, folks. Um, last week, the Israelites made a golden calf, an idol, pretty wild. Uh, then God threatened to obliterate them, but Moses talked God out of it, also pretty wild. And just when you thought things couldn't get more wild, we have this week's text. Moses asks to see the glory of God, this God who called him as it has appeared in a burning bush, a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire, dropped manna, bread from the sky, brought forth water from the rock, showed up in smoke in a mountain and wrote the Ten Commandments on a stone tablet, but Moses has yet to see God face to face. You know, it's sort of meeting someone like meeting somebody online. Uh, you've read their views on the message board, you've seen all their Instagram posts, uh, and they've even sent you a skip the dishes order with KFC, uh, to prove their love to you, uh, but you still have yet to meet, you know, as the kids say, IRL in real life, right? You know, it's tough to really know somebody unless you know somebody in person. And Moses wants to truly meet this God who has been so elusive. Traditional Catholic teaching would say that Moses wants to catch a glimpse of the beatific vision. Moses wants to see God face to face. Now, God's more or less amenable to this proposition, but there's a bit of a problem here. There's a bit of a problem. You cannot see my face, says the Lord. You cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. You cannot see my face, because if anybody sees my face, They'll die. Peer into the Lord's eyes and you are done for. 
Now, why is that? I mean, why would seeing God's face be such a bad thing? Why would it have such a terrible effect? I mean, on one hand, it could be that the fullness of God is just too much for our tiny little finite brains to handle. Seeing God face to face would just, you know, overload our circuits or something like that. We're just not made to see God, which is probably true in some sense, probably true. But I think that the reality is far more odd than this. It's at this point the gulf between the way that we see the world and the way the ancient Israelites saw the world is at its most obvious. Basically, to them, God is pure holiness. There is no darkness in God. There is no sin in God. There is no evil in God. God is pure beauty, truth, and goodness. Human beings, on the other hand, we're not purely evil, totally evil. God created us good, but there's certainly darkness in us. There's certainly sin in us, and there is evil in us, even a righteous dude like Moses. So it's like two chemical elements coming into contact with each other. One just burns the other up entirely. I mean, remember that scene in Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Um, the Ark containing the Ten Commandments, the Ark being the seat of God's presence. There's a scene when the Nazi bad guys all open it up and faces start melting and heads start exploding. And then Indiana Jones tells his girlfriend, Marion, not to look, to close her eyes. That's because Indiana Jones knows his Bible. I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, I saw a message board and people were like, what is this all about? Why does he know, how does he know how to close his eyes? It's because he knows the Bible. It might be the greatest cinematic portrayal of what God is warning against in this text. God can't show Moses his face because when the holiness of God meets the unholiness of human beings, the unholiness is just going to go up in smoke. It'll melt like that, you know, Nazi officer's face, like in the movie. That's kind of the way it is. God can't show his face to Moses without Moses being obliterated. So God can't show his face to Moses without Moses going up in smoke or being destroyed. So God comes up with this other solution, this other solution, and the solution is, well, I mean, I'll be present to Moses, but I'll just cover him right up. I'll just cover him up. My goodness will pass before you, God says, and I will proclaim my holy name before you. But as I'm passing by you on the mountain, I'll pluck you up, you know, like pinching a mouse by the tail and I'll, I'll like, and dropping it in my pocket. I'll, I'll drop you in a cleft in the rock. I'll tuck you right into the mountainside and I will cover you with my own hands. I will show myself to you, but you will be protected. You'll be in the presence of my holiness, but you'll be safe and sound. Once I've passed by, you'll catch a glimpse, not of my face, but of my back. Now, as a little bit of a hilarious aside, um, some of the early Christian interpreters wondered why God would show Moses his posterior. This is the word that they use. In fact, these are early Christians, second, third, 
fourth centuries. And I'm not, probably not going to ever preach on this text again, so I just had to bring it up a little bit. I just had to bring it up. You know, God shows Moses his posterior, and they're like, well, I wonder what that means. I mean, you could say that there's something cheeky about the Lord's activity. Okay, that was the aside, and we'll leave that there forever. Uh, forever, and nobody will speak of it ever again. Now, of course, Moses does what he's told. He stands on the mountain holding the Ten Commandments, like God says, the new Ten Commandments, newly forged Ten Commandments, and God, um, God does what he says he's going to do. He descends in a cloud and stands right there on the mountaintop with Moses, but Moses is tucked safely up in the mountainside as the Lord passes by, and while he's in there, the Lord rings out with this sort of cosmic hymn extolling God's mercy and grace, God's steadfast love from generation to generation. Moses stands in the presence of holiness without being destroyed. God passes by and Moses emerges unscathed. Moses, in his unholiness, is shielded from the holiness of God by God's own hand. Rather than exposing Moses to judgment, God covers Moses. God hides Moses from it altogether. Now, like I said, it's a pretty odd text. It's pretty weird. It's pretty wild. Um, all this holiness stuff is pretty odd to us modern, secular, Western Canadians. I mean, we are so shaped by the Christian story that we don't see holiness and unholiness as much of a big deal. Um, and that's a sermon for another day. But most of us aren't really worried about getting fried with an encounter by a direct encounter with God. I mean, some of you might be, um, but my guess is that most of us are not afraid of encountering the Lord on a mountainside and getting cooked. Um, but we are worried about judgment. We're worried about judgment, aren't we? Worried about our unholiness being exposed, however that unholiness is defined. This last while I've been reading this book called Dopamine Nation by Dr. Anna Lemke, uh, clinical psychologist. I mean, I won't go into the content of the book so much. You can look up the book and read it yourself. Uh, not enough time to talk about that. But in it, she tells the story of a patient of hers, this 20-something young man who uses particular illicit substances to manage his social anxiety. This guy spent his days planning so he wouldn't have to talk to anyone. Uh, he worked at home, so if he had to leave, he he left after his neighbor did to avoid small talk. Um, he'd wear headphones and avoid eye contact on the street, and he'd wait for three, two or three train cars just so he didn't have to say, excuse me, to anyone. He'd ordered his groceries online and Starbucks using the app on his phone to avoid looking a cashier in the eye. I mean, social anxiety is a bit of a mild way of putting it. And his therapist asked him why he did what he did what he was so worried about, and basically he said he was afraid he would screw up. Uh, he'd not know the right things to say, or he'd trip and dump his coffee, and people would think that he was an idiot. Or worse, 
they'd see him for the idiot he always knew he was, that they'd see him and that they would judge him. They would see who he truly was and judge him. I mean, his fear was rooted in exposure and judgment that people would see him for who he truly was and that would, that would be it. So he used drugs and other substances to kind of hide from those feelings and to escape from this great anxiety. I mean, it's a success story if you read the book, just so you know, it's a success story. But. So exposure and judgment. Exposure and judgment. While his case may not have, or while his case may have been rather extreme, this is something that many, if not all of us, have felt at some point in our lives, haven't we? Um, or something that we've even, we're even feeling right in this moment. I mean, a lot of people don't come to church because they're afraid that somebody will judge them, right? A secret truth, something that we've done or something that's been done to us, a hidden shame. We've adopted all sorts of mechanisms to hide, to escape, but it doesn't change the fear. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we've done our best to cover up and to hide. But that if anybody knew, if anybody saw us for what we truly are, then you know holiness would meet our unholiness, that chemical reaction, and that would be the end for us. Or at least some major, major suffering. I mean, some of our guilt is entirely manufactured by cruel finger-wagging. This is true, but a lot of it is real and in response to what we have done. The feeling there is real regardless. You, me, we fear exposure and judgment almost more than anything else, whether it's the Holy One of Israel we are afraid of or not. We are afraid of fear. We are afraid of exposure and judgment. We fear exposure. We fear judgment. We fear shame. Now, here comes the good news. Here comes the good news. Like those same ancients who we have trouble understanding, our grandparents, our great-grandparents in faith, we too have been given a sanctuary like Moses, a hiding place from all fear and judgment. I mean, you may or may not be familiar with the hymn that we're going to sing after the sermon. It's been described as one of the most famous hymns of all time. I was visiting uh, Joyce Dixon uh, one of our members in our home, and I told her we were going to sing this on Sunday, and her, she's still dealing with foot surgery, so she couldn't be here, so she was absolutely crushed. So that's a shout-out to you, Joyce. Um, it's a favorite of a lot of people, though we had to kind of dig it out of the 1930 United Church hymn book. It hasn't made it in the last two, probably on account of the blood and the guilt and all those other things. It kind of goes against our modern sensibilities, but regardless... Regardless, the message is there. Rock of ages, it begins, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. 
let me hide myself in thee. Its title and central theme are a clear allusion to this little episode with God and Moses, the cleft of the rock. But it goes even further. It continues, let the water and the blood from thy riven side, which flowed, be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Now that part clearly is not in our scripture passage for today, is it? I mean, but what the hymn writer, Augustus Toplady, which is maybe the greatest hymn writer's name of all time, Toplady, does here is make the connection between what God does in our text with Moses and what God does for us in Jesus. In the same way God protects Moses from his holiness by hiding him in the cleft of the rock and covering him with his hand, Jesus himself is the rock of ages who hides us in himself, in his very own life. Jesus hides us in himself and he covers us with mercy and forgiveness, suffering for and saving us from the ultimate consequences of our sins, covering our unholiness with his holiness. In the same way God covers Moses, shielding him from God's holiness, Jesus shields us from all judgment. Jesus is the cleft in the rock, our hiding place. He is our refuge and strength, a present help in times of trouble, as the Psalms say. Even if the truth, even if it all comes out, even if everybody sees us for who we are, even if we stand before the entire world exposed, Jesus means that we are safe. Jesus means that we are safe. I am safe. You are safe. We are safe in God's good keeping. We are safe. The guilt and the worry, it's real, it's serious, but the good news is that in the end, it is all for naught. It is all for naught. Not that you haven't done anything wrong, because you have. And it doesn't mean you won't do more in the future, because you will. But it means that in the end, you are covered in forgiveness. You are covered in forgiveness. Like the hand of the Lord shielding Moses from the judgment of the Lord on that fissure in Sinai, the rock of ages promises to keep you safe for all eternity. It's the pledge that you can stand tall without worry, without anxiety, or without fear because the good news is that you're safe forever because you're safely tucked in the very life of God in Christ. And because you are in Christ, you are saved. You are saved. You are safe from all judgment. I just threw the picture of this interesting tattoo for good measure. You can see 
uh, a woman clinging to the cross, which is, has a cleft in it, the cleft of the Lord. So, dear friends, may your life be lived not in the fear of the shadow of death, but in the great light of mercy, grace, and steadfast love, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, like the hand of the Lord shielding Moses in the, collect of the, in the cleft of the rock, know the truth that no matter what, Jesus has got you covered. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And he will, this day and forever. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.